it's one thing to have a good prayer. It's another thing to live a good life after you say amen. It's one thing to have noble conviction. It's another thing to have noble conduct. It's one thing to have right beliefs. It's something else to have right behavior. It's one thing to have good intentions. It's another thing to live out good instructions. It was Samuel the prophet who said, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed is better than the fat of rams. James, the brother of our Lord, said, you show me your faith without deeds, I'll show you my faith by what I do, because faith without deeds is dead. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount, by their fruit, you'll recognize them. The people living in the days of Nehemiah had experienced a spectacular 21-day stretch of revival. It began on the first day of the seventh month. Nehemiah held a Bible conference, invited Ezra as the keynote speaker. Later that month, they observed the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That was the day that was marked each calendar year to offer forgiveness by God for the sins of the people of Israel committed that previous year, staving off God's righteous wrath for another 365 days. Following the Day of Atonement, the people of God living in the time of Nehemiah, they observed the Feast of Tabernacles. It was that week-long celebration where they remembered God's faithful provision for his people as he led them out of Egypt so many years ago. And the God who was faithful all those years ago is still faithful today. And they worshiped and they celebrated. In fact, Nehemiah said that it had not been since the days of Joshua some thousand years earlier that God's people worshiped with such joy and excitement. After those 21 days of righteous revival, they, they came and on the 24th day of the month, they stood aware of their sin. They were heartbroken in their confession. They returned to the word of God. They had a renewal of worship. In Nehemiah chapter 9, they offered a righteous prayer, a powerful prayer, a prayer of confession, a prayer of conviction. They offered a good, solid prayer unto the Lord. But as we turn the page to Nehemiah chapter 10, there ought to be a question burrowing into your mind. The question is, how now will they live in light of that prayer? Will life go back to normal? Or will life be like never before? In other words, we know that they have been challenged. But have they been changed? Isn't that the question of every Sunday morning? Isn't that the question of every time you encounter God's word, whether it's in private worship or in corporate worship under the proclamation preaching of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? We have been challenged every single week. But are we changed? It's that question that's in our minds that forces us to take a look at Nehemiah chapter 10. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 10. I'll begin reading at verse 28. I'll conclude at verse 39. 
the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers and nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and we will cancel all debt. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to be burned on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree as it is written in the law. We will bring the firstborn of our sons, of our cattle, of our herds, of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priest ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all trees, of all our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. For it's the Levites who collect the tithe in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levite when they receive the tithe. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithe up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contribution of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept. And where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and all the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God, you may be seated. Now, obviously, the people living in the days of Nehemiah had just experienced a tremendous movement of God. For starters, they had rebuilt the wall around the city and refortified the gates in only 52 days. In less than two months, they had done a tremendous work in spite of the opposition that was both external and internal. They were not deterred. They were not denied. They worked as one man. And in less than two months, 52 days to be exact, in 52 days, without the modern technology and tools of our time, they rebuilt the wall entirely around the city and they reset every single gate. When you stop and think about that, that, that's remarkable. In fact, by them doing that task in that way, everybody had to conclude 
God did that. I mean, God is the one who did that. No, no group of people could do that job that quickly unless they had the help of the Lord. And certainly it was a great testimony to all the neighboring peoples that this is what God can do when God's people are focused on God's work and God's way. As I stop and think about how they rebuilt the wall without our technology and without our tools, I am reminded that they would have at least had some primitive tools. One of those primitive tools that they would have had, we would call a plumb line. And a plumb line is very basic, it's very simple. It's really only two parts to the plumb line. At the very bottom, there is a heavy piece of metal, could be a heavy stone. It's called a plumb bob. And then the other piece that's attached to the plumb bob of this very sophisticated tool is simply called a string. That's it, two parts, a string and a piece of metal. And yet, a plumb line would have been used on a regular basis in the days of Nehemiah to measure the vertical accuracy of each wall by using the gravitational pull of the earth. Because a plumb line is always true. A plumb line always falls in an accurate way. It uses the earth's gravitational pull. Whenever you drop a plumb line, it never goes up. When you drop it, it never ricochets to the right. When you drop it, it never flies over to the left. A plumb line always falls in an accurate, true fashion. So a plumb line would simply be held up against a wall to see whether that wall is accurate, straight, and pure, or whether the wall is crooked, bent, and out of line. I can tell you that probably that as the people of God rebuilt the city of God, there were times when their construction wasn't all that straight. And periodically, they would use a, a plumb line. They would hold it up. It would quickly reveal that that wall was leaning a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. And whenever they saw that something was physically out of line, they made the corrections needed. Because the last thing the people of God wanted was a crooked wall. The last thing they wanted was to give all this effort into a project that was out of line. When you and I come to Nehemiah chapter 10, the people of God need a, a spiritual plumb line. They don't need a physical plumb line to measure a physical construction of their life. They need a spiritual plumb line to examine the spiritual condition of their heart. They needed a, a spiritual plumb line. And whether you lived 400 years before the coming of Christ or whether you live 2,000 years after the coming of Christ, all of us use spiritual plumb lines. We always measure our life against something. Sometimes our spiritual plumb line is another person. We measure the straightness of our life compared to the straightness of somebody else's life. We think to ourselves, I'm a little bit better than he is. I'm not quite as good as she is. Somewhere in the middle, not all that bad. The problem is that when we measure our life against the spiritual plumb line of another person, every person we choose is flawed. I'm not talking about slightly flawed. 
I'm talking about big time flawed. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may measure up well against some scallywag, but he's still a scallywag. You may not measure up too well against somebody that you think is great, but I promise you that person ain't that great. All of us have sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. Other times we measure our life against a spiritual plumb line of logic or reason. If it makes sense to us, we'll do it. If it makes sense to us, it must be right. It must be true. It must be accurate. If it doesn't make sense to us, then it's out of line. If it doesn't pass the test of logic, then it's crooked, twisted, bent. Oh, but friends, even though logic and reason is a helpful comrade from time to time, let me ask you this. Have you ever done anything that in the moment it made sense to you, but after the fact, you felt feelings of shame and guilt? Or has God ever asked you to do something that just doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't pass the human reason test. I mean, God, you're telling me to have this conversation. You're telling me to take that job. You're telling me to move my family there. That doesn't make any sense, but God says to do it. Sometimes the spiritual plumb line of logic is not very logical. Other times people measure their life against the spiritual plumb line of tradition. It's our upbringing. It's what we were taught. I mean, we were told that we don't date, uh, we don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date girls who do. And so that's what we've been taught. So that's what we do. That's what we implement. And sometimes the teaching of our upbringing, maybe even the tradition of our particular denomination, maybe it's not all that accurate. But we try to measure our life against tradition. We've always done it that way. So we always have to keep on doing it that way. And still, I think that more times than not, the greatest spiritual plumb line in our culture is personal experience. People measure their life against themselves. And they're the ones who determine what is good. And they're the ones who determine what is true. And they're the ones who determine what is crooked. And they're the ones who determine what is out of line. And if it's straight to me, it must be straight. If it's out of line to me, it must be out of line. The problem is that once again, the person you're measuring yourself up against, which is you, you are flawed, sinful from the inside out, top to bottom. All those spiritual plumb lines, they're not true. When you drop the spiritual plumb line of other people or logic and reason, maybe your upbringing and tradition, maybe even your own personal experience, it doesn't always fall straight, true, accurate, and pure. The people living in the days of Nehemiah, they needed a spiritual plumb line that could act like their physical plumb line as they were restructuring the wall. They needed a spiritual plumb line that had no errors. They needed a spiritual plumb line that, that, that was always absolutely true. They needed a spiritual plumb line that could clearly show them how to live and where their lives are out of line. And when they could see their lives are out of line, that that spiritual plumb line would help them get back on track. They needed a spiritual plumb line without any mistakes. In our passage of Nehemiah chapter 10, they get that spiritual plumb line. You and I would call it the Bible. 
In our passage, it clearly reveals that this tool against which they were going to measure their life from here on out was the Word of God. They weren't going to trust other people. They weren't going to compare themselves to the other nations. They weren't going to compare themselves to what they understood to be logical or reasonable. They weren't going to compare themselves just to their tradition and their upbringing of the way things have been going for the last several decades. They said, we are even not going to compare ourselves to ourselves. We're going to compare ourselves to the law of God. The law of God that was given to the servant Moses. We would call it the Bible. Because they determined that the Bible always fell true. That the Bible always landed in an accurate way that it could clearly and quickly reveal where your life, where your heart, where your thinking was in line or out of bounds. So in our passage, in verse 29, we are told that the 84 people listed in verses 1 to 27 along with all of the leaders and their wives and their children, sons and daughters, they all came together and they made a covenant. They made a promise. They came together and they said, we want to live our life in accordance with the word of God, so we will follow the law of God. We will do all the commands that are declared for us and decreed for us in the law of God. In verses 34 and 36, on two other occasions, they say, we want to live life, and I quote, as it is written in the law, end of quote. They said, this is our spiritual plumb line. The Bible is the tool against which we will measure all of our life, make our decisions. We will live before a watching world in front of a holy God. We want to please the Lord. We want his favor to fall upon us. We want God to be pleased with every decision that we make. Friend, let me ask you, do you have that desire? I mean, truly, do you have the desire to say, Lord, I want to live my life in such a way that you are honored, you are glorified, and that your spiritual plumb line is given in my life, and I measure my life against your word. And Lord, I want to live exactly the way you tell me to live. And wherever I am crooked or bent, twisted, out of line, that you, by your grace and by your spirit, will help me as I apply your word to my life. Do you really want to live according to God's word? I'll tell you that I, I do applaud the people living in the days of Nehemiah. They genuinely had this desire. They really wanted the favor of the Lord. They had come through a great revival. They had heard preaching. They were clamoring for God's word. They knew their sins had been forgiven and the wrath of God pushed off one more year. They had worshiped like nobody's business, not since the days of Joshua, a thousand years prior. I mean, they were excited about the Lord. They were aware of their sin. They were heartbroken because of it. They wanted to return to God's word and renew their worship of him. They were sincerely interested in living for the Lord. And they said, God, we want your word to be our spiritual plumb line. What's true for them is also true for you. If you desire to please God in all decisions of life, I submit to you God's plumb line. It's his holy book. It's the Bible. The scripture always falls true. It's always straight. It's never twisted. 
It never leads you astray. It always tells you exactly who God is, who you are, and what God expects of you, and how he came to save you in the person of Jesus Christ. This, my friends, is, the, is God's plumb line for your life and mine. Now, in our passage, they focus this covenant primarily around two areas of life. One, family. Second, finances. If your family and your finances are in check... That's a pretty good indicator that you have a desire to live in accordance with the word and will of God. So, in verse 30, they begin with the family. They make this commitment. They make this promise. We will not give our daughters in marriage to the neighboring peoples. And we will not take their daughters for our sons in marriage. Now before you think, well that sounds a little snobby, or before you try to think that's racist, it's not. No, according to God's word, we acknowledge that marriage is a gift of common grace that's given to all of humanity. But according to the spiritual plumb line of God's word, God delights when a believer marries a believer. That's marriage by God's design. The reason God wants a believer to marry a believer is so that pure religion can be passed on to the next generation. True faith can be given to your sons and daughters, your grandsons and your granddaughters. God's word is consistent. By his design, it is good for a believer to marry a believer. That's what the people of Nehemiah's day are saying. That those of the neighboring nations, those neighboring peoples, they were not followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had a convoluted image of the Lord. They had their own deities. And so they were not worshipers of Yahweh himself. And so they understood that if you put a believer with a non-believer, there will be religious confusion. There will be constant chaos and turmoil. They will, they will be, as the Bible later says, unequally yoked. They'll be pulling in different directions. The one who's a believer will be pulling in an allegiance to the Lord himself. The one who's not a believer will be pulling to an allegiance to the culture. They'll be unequally yoked. They won't be moving in the right direction. They won't be pulling in the same direction. So God is consistent, Old Testament, New Testament, that it's a good idea for believers to marry believers. It's always chaotic when a believer marries a non-believer. It is hard enough to do marriage well between a believer and a believer. Can I get an amen? The 915 service said nothing. You said very little more. I expected you to give a hearty amen. It is hard enough, friend, when it's a believer and a believer trying to navigate life together. That's hard enough. But when you put a believer and a non-believer together, that makes it exponentially uh, more dramatic and difficult and tense. There have been people, thank you, there have been those who have said, you know, pastor, it's not really that big of a deal uh, because 
even though I know I'm marrying someone who's not really on fire for the Lord, not even a believer per se, uh, I think we will make it work. I think this will work. And the way we're going to make it work is we're going to agree to disagree and we're just simply going to love each other. And I usually tell a person like that 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 love will last about three to six months. And then after three to six months, the wheels will fall off. Because there'll be difficult conversations when it comes to religion and finances and in-laws and unmet expectations and the stress of everyday life. And that love just ain't going to cut it. It would be far better for you to come at life at the same worldview. It'd be far better for you to come to life, uh, come at this marriage equally yoked, going in the right direction. We ask ourselves the wrong question. We ask ourselves the question, will this marriage work? That's the wrong question. The right question is, will this marriage glorify God? That's the right question. So that's the question that we ought to ask. As we're raising our children, as we're raising our grandchildren, as you're making decisions about life, it's not, will this work? The question is, will this glorify God? And if it is going to glorify God, have at it. If it ain't going to glorify God, don't do it. I remember that before I was a pastor, I was a student pastor. And so you can well imagine, and Pastor Matt can testify, that when it comes to student ministry, there are a lot of conversations about dating and love and future marriage. And I remember that, you know, I would, I would tell the students, don't even date somebody who's not serious about Christ. Don't even date them. And inevitably, a young lady would come to me and she would say, but, but he's so cute. And I think that if I date him, that I just might win him to Christ. And I would say to her, I want you to witness to anybody and everybody, win him to the Lord. But just because you witness to him doesn't mean you have to date him because you've got to be very selective. I would speak to the guys and guys were even more superficial as you can well imagine. And guys would come up to me and they would say, yeah, Davin, I know, I know. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to date a Christian. But I got to tell you, I, I just got to make sure my wife is hot. And I would say, I get it. I understand, Daniel. I know you want your wife to be hot. I get it. And so then I came up with this little phrase that I would tell the students, and I'll tell you today. To any guy, I would say, uh, look, you need, you need a swag. That's what you need. You need a swag. And I would tell to the girls, what you really need, you need a smog. Before anything, you need somebody who's a smog. They would look at me and I would say to the guy, a swag is a sexy woman of God. That's what you need. I'd tell the girls, you need a smog, a sexy man of God. And then I would say, I want you to prioritize the second part of that statement before the first part of the statement. You focus on the of God part and the sexy part will take care of itself. Can I get an amen? You focus on finding yourself a swag. And all the men of the house, you've got to find a swag, a sexy woman of God. She's got to be of God. And if she's of God, I bet you she's sexy. And to all the ladies of the house, I got to tell you, you need a smog. You need a sexy man of God. Make sure he's of God, not of the culture. And if he's of God, by chances, he just might be sexy. And so you need a smog. You need a swag. That's what I would tell them. That's what Nehemiah is telling the people. That's that's what I tell you today. You need a swag, men. You need a smog, ladies. 
That's what the guys and people of Nehemiah chapter 10 are saying. Listen, our number one priority is to make sure that the faith of the family is passed on from one generation to the next. We need to make sure that our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren know God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We need to make sure that they have the pure, true faith. So we will not give our daughters to pagan men. And we will not take pagan ladies for our sons. I tell the students, I tell my children, look, I, I don't really care so much what he or she looks like. Just make sure he's a godly guy. And make sure she's a godly gal. I don't care if he has three eyes. Make sure, all, make sure all three of those eyes are looking to Christ. I don't care what he looks like. I don't care what she looks like. She needs to be gorgeous in your eyes. He needs to be a hunk in your eyes. But, but listen, you got to make sure it's of God. First and foremost, of God. This is the covenant of Nehemiah chapter 10. This is the promise where God's people come to God and they say, God, we want our marriages, we want our parenting, we want our family to glorify you. It's not a question of will it work, it's a question of will it bring honor and glory to you. And that's how we want to conduct our life. So all throughout the Bible, God is very clear that a marriage by God's design is a believing man and a believing woman for life. And the man is to be a spiritual leader of the home. What that means, men, is that you set the spiritual temperature. You lead in the gospel conversations. You lead in the prayer of the family. Not that you're the only one praying, but you kind of take the lead in that. You are the lead discipler of your children. Don't delegate that to somebody else. You do your best to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And remember that Jesus gave up his life for his church. So men, you got to be willing to take a bullet for your bride. You are a spiritual leader of your home. And wives, you are to be willingly submissive to the godly guidance of your husband. It's not that marriage is a monarchy, but in marriage you respect your husband. And he is never more respectable than when he gives godly guidance. And when he leads the family in a godly way, you willingly submit to him as he submits to the Lord. And together, husband, wife, if God graces you with, parent, with, with children, you parent those children with love and training. You teach them the scripture. You point them to Jesus by your words and by your walk. You give them every example, every opportunity possible so they can begin and develop a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when they come to their death day, the only thing that's going to matter is what did your son do for Christ? What did your daughter do with Jesus? And if it matters that much on their death day, it must matter that much on this day. So you give all of your energy, leverage all of your influence to help your children know Jesus and make him known. And children... You honor mom and dad so it may go well with you. This is the first commandment with a promise. You honor mom and dad. As youngsters, you do that by simply obeying their instruction. But the older you get, 
You honor and heap glory upon mom and dad by the way you live your life and the decisions that you make. Today, I do my best to honor my parents by the decisions that I make and how I live my life. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. But we do our very best to live according to the spiritual plumb line, which is God's word. And God clearly says that marriage and family belongs to a believing man and a believing woman. They are for life. And, and, they, and, and they raise a family that honors the Lord and points each other to Jesus and points others to Jesus and they do their best to heap honor and glory to those behind them and those coming in front of them. This is the covenant that the people of Nehemiah agreed to. They said, this is what we want. We want to live our life. We want to measure our marriage next to the spiritual plumb line of God's word. We want to measure our parenting next to the spiritual plumb line of the Bible. We want to We want to measure our family next to the spiritual plumb line of the sacred scripture. I'll say one other thing before we move on. Please, don't measure your marriage to other couples. Please don't do that. Don't measure the success of your family compared to other families. And please, whatever you do, don't compare and measure your marriage and your family to the ones you see on Instagram and Facebook. Because I'll let you in on a secret that I think you probably know. What's portrayed on Facebook is probably a lie. I think there needs to be a rule with Facebook and Instagram that you need to not only post the picture that you want to post, but also post the picture five seconds later. Because that would probably reveal with more accuracy right, how they really are. Because I promise you, he's not always that happy. He looks happy. He's not always that happy. And she's not always that adorable. She's really not. Because if you could just post the picture five seconds later, you know, the first picture is this. And the second picture five seconds later would be, shut up, kids, and get in the car. I mean, right? I mean, that's kind of what happens. That's kind of what happens, right? I mean, I think it needs to be a rule that you post the first picture and the second picture five seconds later. Don't compare and measure your life, your marriage against other people, against logic and reason, against tradition, against upbringing, against uh, your own personal experience. The spiritual plumb line of your marriage and your family is the word of God. Second, not only is our family, but also finances. They said, we want our finances. We, we assume this responsibility. So in verse 31, They assume the responsibility to not buy or sell on the Sabbath. The problem is that during the days of Nehemiah, the Sabbath looked like every other day of the week. The Sabbath had no longer been set aside for worship, but the Sabbath was set aside for commerce. And the Sabbath looked just like Tuesday or just like Thursday, just like any other day of the week. They got caught, caught up in the culture of materialism, caught up in the culture of the paganism that was around them. And the Sabbath was given for the purpose of setting some time aside to worship. The Sabbath was given to be a peculiarly different day than any other day of the week. Because you are a peculiar people. You're a royal priesthood. You're different than the world. Even the way you organize and calendar your time is different. So you set some time on the Sabbath aside to worship. 
What happened in those days is that they neglected their worship service, they neglected the attendance of worship, and they engaged in buying and selling and trading, being profitable on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath looked just like every other day of the week. All throughout the Bible, God's people honor the Sabbath. In the New Testament, the realization came that, you know, Jesus, he died on Friday. He was in the tomb parts of three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, he was raised from the dead. So the Christians said, why don't we worship not necessarily on the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday. Let's worship on Sunday, the first day of the week. It'll be a weekly reminder every seven days that the tomb is empty and it makes all the difference in the world. And that kind of caught on. Because the church for 2,000 years primarily worships on Sunday, the first day of the week, not the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. Because we remember that the tomb is empty, but the, but the spirit of this day is, is very similar. There, this day is set aside for something significantly different. It's not that we don't worship the other days of the week. But on Sunday, the first day of the week, the New Testament Sabbath, on this day, we set aside a significant portion of time for us to think about Christ, for us to worship him in spirit and in truth, for us to gather with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Every discovery class, I tell perspectives, uh, church members uh, and new church members, it is the expectation when it comes to church attendance here at First Baptist Pelham that you're here 75% of the time, three out of four Sundays a month. Because we think it's that important. We think that worshiping God corporately is that important. We want you here at least 75% of the time, three out of four Sundays. And everybody looks at me the same way you're looking at me. Huh? Because the reality is we don't have a people group that hits that 75% mark. The closest are our senior adults, but every generation below the senior adults, the frequency of church attendance wanes significantly. Now, collectively as a whole, we are here about 50% of the time. 50% of the time, two out of four Sundays a month, we're here. Um, but just because we're here 50% of the time, that doesn't diminish the standard that we want people to be here at least 75% of the time. Why? Because we think that this is that important. To set this time aside. Because if you don't set this time aside, what would you do with this time? Probably something that looks just like Tuesday and just like Thursday. So we set this time aside. So in verse 31, it was, you know what? We're not going to buy and sell. Our finances are, are not going to be used to buy and sell on the Sabbath. Verse 32. Uh, we commit take the responsibility to pay the annual temple tax, which is one-third of a shekel. And that was given uh, to help the general fund, you and I would say, to keep the work of the temple up and running, all of the bread at the altar and the table and, and all of the uh, offerings and sacrifices that were made. And so just doing the work of the temple, it was a third of a shekel. But during the days of Nehemiah, they had been negligent. They hadn't been giving. They've not been giving a third of the shekel. And since its inception, the way it was always housed and framed is that God, he redeemed you at a very high price. And in light of his costly redemption of you, you willingly give back to him out of gratitude. So every year they would give a third of a shekel as a temple tax. The people of God said, look, you know what? We're going to put God first on our budget sheet. We're going to put God first in our finances. We're giving back the third of the shekel for the temple tax. You get to verse 34, and they speak about how they had cast lots 
to those priests and Levites and people who were going to bring wood to the altar. Did you know that in Leviticus chapter 6, the Bible says that the fire of the altar should never go out. In the days of Nehemiah, the fire had waned. And so they said, we're going to assign when people are going to bring wood. It's going to cost you something. You may have to go chop it. You may have to go buy it, whatever. But you're going to bring the wood so that the altar of God is always ablaze. The altar of God is always on fire. We never want it to go out. That would take a lot of wood to burn 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Did you know that it's the nature of a fire to go out? It's not the nature of a fire to keep on burning. If you want a fire to keep on burning, you've got to stoke it. What is needed on the altar of the temple of God is the same thing that's needed on the altar of your heart. You've got to stoke the fire. You've got to stoke the spiritual fervor of your life. It is by nature, it is the object of a fire to go out, to burn out. But you've got to stoke it. I don't want to be a part of a church where the fire has gone out. I know you don't want to be a part of a church where the fire has gone out. We need to stoke the fire in one another's lives so we will burn a blaze in a, in a culture so we can be a bright light to a world that is dark and dim. We need to stoke the fire. You get to verse 35. They make a promise to give the first fruits. This goes all the way back to our first family. Adam and Eve came together. They had Cain and Abel. They taught those boys that when you go to worship, you never come empty-handed. You bring an offering. Don't show up in this house empty-handed, they must have said. When you go to worship of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, the maker of all things seen and unseen, when you go to worship, you don't go empty-handed. So we are told that Abel, he worked the flocks. And Cain, he worked the field. When it came time for an offering, Abel brought some of the fat portion of the firstborn of the flock. Cain, he brought some of the fruit from his labor. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 4 that God looked with favor upon Abel and his offering, but he did not look with favor upon Cain and his offering. Now, why is that? Is it because that God, pres uh, God would rather have meat over fruit? No, that's not it. It's because Abel came and he brought the best, the fat portion of the firstborn of the flock. But Cain, Scripture's clear, he brought some of the fruit. Not the first fruit, not the best fruit. He brought some of the fruit, some of the fruit that was rotten, some of the fruit that was spoiled, some of the fruit that was left over. And he did not get credit for showing up. He didn't get credit for bringing something because God is the best and God demands the best from you and from me and nothing less than the best will do when we come to the worship of our God. So God did not look with favor upon him or his offering simply because he gave God his leftovers. Oh, my friends, I wonder if this hits home at all. For are there times when you give God just your leftovers? Leftover time, leftover energy, leftover effort, leftover finances. You just see what's left over at the end of the month, and whatever's left over, that's what you give. And the Bible says that, that leftover is nothing more than spoiled and rotten. And God does not look with favor upon you or that offering. The people of God had gotten to the point where they were just giving the leftovers. 
Ah, but now here in Nehemiah 10, they say, we're, we're committed. We're going to give the first fruit of the flock, the first fruit of every fruit tree, because God deserves it. See, they are measuring their life against the spiritual plumb line of God's word. You come to verse 37, and in verse 37 is the final one. They say, we are going to renew our responsibility to tithe. A tithe is 10%. It's the first 10%. Historically, the people of God always gave God their first fruit of their offering, their first 10%. By giving the first 10%, they were saying all 100% is dedicated to you. And the people of old understood, I can do more with 90% if I give my first 10% to God than if I keep 100% and use it all on myself. I know that doesn't make sense mathematically, but in God's economy, it makes perfect sense. And historically, God's people always gave 10%. In the days of Nehemiah, they become negligent. They gave some of the leftovers. They gave sometimes, but not all the time. They didn't give 10%. They just, give what, they just gave what they could spare. And here, in light of the revival and the renewal that they had experienced, they said, we are going to recommit to the tithe. We're going to give God the first 10%. He gave all the specifications of how the 10% was going to be collected to communicate that uh, nothing's shady, nothing's under the table. There's going to be a descendant of Aaron with the Levite, and they're going to come and collect it. And then the Levites are going to bring a tenth of the tithe and bring it to the storehouse. And so you can trust the system. You can trust that we're not going to put it in our pocket. You can trust that we're not just going to, you know, skim off the top. We're going to do it the right way. And so they gave a tithe. You know what's interesting? In the New Testament, you won't find the word tithe. There's no equation in the New Testament when it comes to generosity. It just simply says that uh, uh, Paul spoke to the Corinthians and said, God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful is hilarious. We give so much that it puts a smile on God's face, and, and we even laugh about it because we're generous. I need to applaud you for your generosity. As I look at you, I realize that the last two years, 18 months, you've been so faithful. In the midst of COVID-19, not only did you give so we could meet and exceed the budget of 2020, but you have given the first six months of 21 in a greater way than you gave in the first six months of 2020. We're on a better trajectory this year than we even were on last year. Let me also say that you've been giving faithfully to the D&D Challenge. That's our financial campaign to remove debt and raise disciples. I can tell you that today our church indebtedness is $3.1 million. It continues to tumble downward, spiral downward. When we get to our our month-long emphasis in October, When we come and and we ask you to re-enlist and re-engage or to enlist for the very first time, when we get there, check this out, when we get there, our church indebtedness will be under $3 million. And your giving towards D&D Challenge since inception of 2015 will be greater than $2 million. Can I get an amen? God, he deserves more than a golf clap. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. God is good and you are faithful. But let me also add this. I know my time is up, but hang with me. I know that in this church, 80% of the resources come from 20% of the people. So I'm telling you that the 20% of the people have been very, 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 very faithful. But I know I'm also speaking to some people. And maybe you just become negligent 
in the tithes, offerings, and first fruits. Maybe you've become negligent. And I say this as gently as I can. Measure your life against the plumb line of God's scripture. Don't measure your giving against somebody else. Measure it against the plumb line of the scripture. And maybe there's somebody today who's been negligent that needs to say with the people of the days of Nehemiah, we're going to give our first fruit. The end of the passage just simply says, we will not neglect the house of God. And I'll add, we will not neglect the God of the house. We will not neglect him because he's worth our worship. He's worth our adoration. He is worth our affection. So today, symbolically, we enter into a covenant where we say to God, God, we will not neglect you. We will not neglect your work. We will not neglect your church. We will not neglect your holiness. We will not neglect our witness. We will not neglect our worship. We will not neglect our attendance. We will not neglect our marriages. We will not neglect our parenting. We will not neglect our finances. We will not neglect any daily decision of life. God, we want to do our best to live according to your uh, plumb line, which is the scripture, the word that you've given us us by your own finger. God, we want to live in favor of you. And we will not neglect. We will not neglect God or his word. It was Alexander White who said the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. A victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. Is there anybody who just needs a new beginning? Anybody who needs a fresh start? I cannot count the number of new beginnings God has given me in my life. I'm not just saying that as preacher talk. I'm saying that transparently and honestly. I cannot count the number of new starts, do-overs, new beginnings that God has given me. And what God gives me, he'll give to you. It is Isaiah who says that God's plumb line is his righteousness. It is Amos who says God is setting a new plumb line among his people. In the New Testament, we understand that Jesus is the righteousness of God. He is the plumb line. He is the standard. He is the model against which we measure all things in faith and practice. And because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of our faith in his accomplished work, his righteousness is regarded as belonging unto us. Can I get an amen? Praise the Lord. Because of what Christ has done, he is our plumb line. He is our standard. He is perfection. He gives us his righteousness. We give him our rags. He gives us his salvation we give him all of our soiled garments and in in exchange we stand holy and innocent before a watching God and this morning I'm just simply asking you the life that you live in Christ how does it measure against God's plumb line if it's straight and true to God be the glory if there are places where it's out of line by God's grace let today be a new beginning I know that most Sundays were challenged. But let me ask you, most Sundays, are we changed? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation, and Lord, we don't just want to be challenged, we want to be changed. By the power of God, by the Spirit of the Lord, 
We want to be changed. So Lord, help us in this moment to give you all that we are. Help us if we need a new beginning. Help us if we need to give our life to Christ. Help us if we need to join this church. Father, help us to measure our life honestly and accurately against the spiritual plumb line of the Lord, the Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.